And here joining uh, Michael Ward and myself is Paul Shakeshaft, uh, completed an MA in philosophy supervised by Sir Roger Scruton, uh, rest in peace, as a Rotary International Scholar, a scholar in residence at C.S. Lewis's Oxford Home in the Kilns. He has addressed the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society on Lewis and the Natural Law, graduate of Regent University School of Law, has defended religious liberty in Eastern Europe and contributed research to Virginia's first anti-human trafficking law, uh, Paul Shakeshaft. Uh, welcome him to the Final uh, uh, piece of the conference uh, isn't isn't exactly uh, related to education, though. Um, but I think it, it will touch on it in some ways. Um, we, we just thought it'd be worth uh, thinking through C.S. Lewis um, and his relationship to ecumenism, uh, both in his era as well as in the contemporary era. This is uh, both the first conference that the Davin Institute has had, which had sort of any sort of focus on C.S. Lewis. Um, uh, and then also the first time the Davin Institute has had uh, a Roman Catholic as the sort of primary speaker. Um, and so we thought it was worth spending some time thinking through uh, some of those questions and that, that you, you guys would be ideally placed to have that conversation. Um, and I'm gonna open with uh, a little known set of letters that uh, I, I read several years ago between uh, C.S. Lewis and an Italian priest named uh, Don Giovanni Calabria, who was later beatified. And so, um, identified uh, as a saint in the Roman Catholic tradition, um, which really opens with uh, a request by Don Calabria to, um, to Lewis, sort of pleading for the reunification of the church, right? So, so Protestantism and Roman Catholicism um, split uh, about 500 years ago uh, from one another to the communion, and um, it was a priest writing to Lewis saying, you have, you have all this influence, um, you're clearly a man of deep learning, uh, deep respect for the Christian tradition, um, and we're, you know, I'm, I'm longing for unification. Are you willing to sort of join me in that? Um, and I'll just read you a bit from Lewis's opening response to get us started, and then, and then maybe you guys can, can respond to some of your thoughts about, um, yeah, just Protestantism and Catholicism, both in Lewis's day as well as now. So uh, Lewis responds uh, by thanking him for his letter and saying, thank you for your letter. Uh, full of love and goodwill, be assured that for me too, schism in the body of Christ is both a source of grief and a matter for prayers, being a most serious stumbling block to those coming in, and one which makes even the faithful weaker in calling the common foe. And then he says, however, I'm a layman, indeed the most lay of laymen, and the least skilled in the deeper questions of sacred theology, I've tried to do the only thing that I think myself able to do, that is to leave completely aside the subtler questions about which the Roman church and Protestants disagree among themselves, things which are to be treated of by bishops and learned men. And in my own books to expound rather those things which still, by God's grace, after so many sins and errors, are shared by us. Uh, and then he ends by, uh, by I, I think, getting as close to a positive project as, as he comes across. He says, um, if all Protestants and Catholics were actively to do this uh, engaging with one another in fraternal intercourse, uh, fraternal intercourse, uh, this friendship. Might we not hope that this unity of love and action over many years would proceed, not to say foster, an eventual reunification of doctrines, and thoroughly there remains what is most efficacious for um, So, uh, when, you, when you look over Lewis's writings, um, wh where do you see him uh, in the various ecumenical debates of his day <laughs> um, I, I would see him generally avoiding them, <laughs> except in, in these sorts of letters. Uh, and it's not just to Calabria that he writes that kind of thing. Um, it's a fairly common theme in Lewis's correspondence. And when correspondents wish to draw him onto controversial territory and begin to pummel away at Lewis as to why he hasn't become a Catholic yet, um, <laughs> Lewis writes back and says, well, I have my reasons, and I could give these reasons, and then you could give counter-reasons, and I could counter those. Haven't we got better things to do? <laughs> or, you know, have, ought we not to spend our time doing something else, more profitable? Um, and he, you know, he himself was already, you know, spending, you might even say wasting 
hours every day writing to every Tom, Dick, and Harry who wrote, it, wrote to him. You know, every bore on five continents writes to me, he says. Um, and oh, the mails, he says. Uh, I have to spend you know, two or three hours every morning before I can get to my own work replying to these. Uh, so he was absolutely scrupulous in replying to, to readers and correspondents more generally. Um, so I think that's another reason why he just refused to be drawn onto those controversial matters. And as for his public works, uh, well, uh, you know, he said it there out of his own mouth. He, he felt he was called to defend mere Christianity, what has been, you know, everywhere by all and in all places believed, or was that effect the Vincentian canon, you know. Um, and I sometimes wonder whether it isn't related to his having grown up in Ulster, mm -hmm. in the north of Ireland, which in his day, and even alas today, though much less so today, um, is a very sectarianly divided community. Um, and he, he does mention some of his own sort of observations growing up. He said, in my, in my youth, he said, if, if, our, if our mother saw her Protestant son across the Tiber, she would have felt simply grief-stricken, mm -hmm. or words to that effect. Um, that, uh, at least, he says, has softened or has passed, and he, he thinks that's a good sign. Um, because, of course, a lot of the problems in Ireland are not really theological. They're social and cultural and political. And they're just entangled with superficially, ostensibly theological matters. Um, and, and Lewis is alive to the fact that a lot of so-called so uh, ecclesiological divisions are, are purely matters of habit. And doesn't he say in Screwtape letters somewhere that, you know, that mo most Christians c could not distinguish um, Hooker's doctrine of the mass from Aquinas's? in any form that would hold water for five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and yet they much prefer the word communion to the word mass, mm -hmm. uh, for instance. Right. So he, he's, he's definitely sensitive to the, to the fact that a, a lot of what we're talking about in ecumenical uh, discussions is not really what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. It's the superficies, it's the, the irrelevancies that append onto genuine theological differences. I can't remember which 17th century author it is, but he makes an observation that there are men who run through the streets of London decrying the Pope, not knowing whether he be man or horse, <laughs> <laughs> on the point of not being able to distinguish between Hooker and Aquinas on the Eucharist. Um, the question is interesting. What ecumenical debates was he a part of? Lewis, of course, lives really before ecumenism takes off. Mm -hmm. um, dies before the end of the Second Vatican Council. Did, did, did he die before the Second Vatican Council was called, or was that? No, it had been called, it, it hadn't been, called. been concluded, yeah. Yeah, um, so it's interesting how much, how dedicated he was to ecumenism in the first place, mm -hmm. um, and that he draws on a Puritan, Baxter, for the very phrase, mere Christianity. And in, in mere Christianity, the book, has it reviewed by a Presbyterian, a Methodist, and a Roman Catholic, and mentions that in the introduction by listing those denominations in alphabetical order, so as to scrupulously avoid um, any sort of suggestion as to which were the most important in his mind. One, one debate that he does wade into, however, in 1942 is the debate on women priestesses. And there we see a glimpse into both his reform tendency and Catholicity. Mm -hmm. So he makes a, a Catholic argument uh, against women in the priesthood uh, because he, he understands and he argues that that's the, the function of the priest is both to represent man to God but also God to man. Mm -hmm. and, and for him, he finds it problematic that uh, uh, you know, he, he, he tries to put it from the perspective of God to man. You know, could we address God as our mother in heaven mm -hmm. as legitimately as we could our father? And so he's very Catholic on that. In that essay, he does um, say, I, uh, I've gone on this question, I've gone to the fathers, and I've gone to the scripture, and I've gone to Hooker. 
<laughs> so, so he is still drawing very much on the English Reformation mm -hmm. uh, for his theological artillery, but making a, a Catholic argument that certainly not everyone in the Church of England in his day mm -hmm. or today uh, would have agreed on. Yeah, it, it's something that strikes me as interesting that uh, he, unlike so many of um, these Protestant thinkers, does so much of the work to, to dig deep roots, not just in uh, his theological tradition, but the you know, broader tradition of the church, going all the way back to the patristics, and then seeing the ways that they're grounding that in uh, ancient Greek philosophy as well. Um, so I, I wonder if that, um, I, I definitely think that's led him uh, a wider audience than, than one would expect. At the same time, um, I think it, uh, it leads to something like uh, a problematic relationship that he has with any given tradition that's trying to sort of make use of him because you, you can't just sort of adopt Lewis. You have to sort of adopt the whole thing and make sense of all of it, right? Um, so you, you mentioned mere Christianity, and one of the things that I'm always thinking about when I hear somebody reference his, his classic work, mere Christianity, is, well, have you, have you really read it? I mean, how near is your mere Christianity relative to his? Mm. Um, because he's talking about, um, you know, his mere Christianity includes teaching on marriage, uh, on the virgin, uh, the virginity of Mary. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, there's, there's several points in there where he's making far more expansive claims uh, as being essential aspects of the faith. And I think maybe in the evangelical American context, people are, are sort of really ready to take seriously. Um, the first two chapters of mere Christianity are on natural law, right. which is something pretty much lost in, in the English-speaking Reformed tradition mm -hmm. uh, or Protestant worlds. So, yeah, and he, he's touching on ethical issues, practical issues that come from living out the faith. Uh, liberalism in the church in his day, which was just really beginning and after, stressed the, the unity of ethical teaching while being able to diverge on dogmatic teaching. Uh, so you could be creedally unorthodox while being ethically orthodox. But that's flipped. So now the emphasis from the liberal tradition in the church would be to emphasize creedal orthodoxy, so really being strong on, say, the resurrection, and Mary's virginity, uh, things like that, uh, while being you know, more open on, on applied issues of, of ethics and anthropology. Lewis, I think, is insisting that you would, you would need both. Another, another thought that comes to mind from your Christianity is um, it's one place where he offers his, um, his image of the house as, as uh, the image of ecumenism, that, um, you know, mere Christianity, the work is like a hallway in which, you know, he, he's hoping he can kind of invite you into the, the front hall of uh, the house of Christianity uh, in his apologetic work, and if you were to become a Christian, you would then sort of be able to make a determination, uh, you know, according to your own reason about what room of the house you're going to uh, spend your time in, in terms of what church you're going to worship in, whether it be you know, Methodist, Roman Catholic, uh, Presbyterian, Anglican. Um, do you guys, do you think that's still a fitting image of uh, the contemporary sort of uh, problems that beset an ecumenical uh, Christian thinker, or, um, or, or does it not quite work because we, perhaps the houses, you know, they're, do we need to have a driveway with separate houses or something like that? <laughs> well, I wonder if it, if it has ever fitted genuine ecumenical discussions. I'd, I'm not very knowledgeable about genuine ecumenical discussions. Uh, and as far as I know, Lewis didn't participate in them. Uh, so, uh, as I say, he, he's slightly dodging the question. He, he's setting up his own frame of reference, which, which suits his, his purposes and, his, and what he believed to be his calling. Um, it's, it's sometimes amused me that although in the preface to mere Christianity he goes to great lengths to say um, that you mustn't stay in the hall very long, that the hall is only a place for, for waiting, not for camping. 
uh, and you must go into one of the other rooms, whether it be labelled Baptist or Pentecostal or Presbyterian or Anglican or Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or whatever. It's in those rooms, he says, where the life of the house really goes on. It's in the rooms where there are armchairs and meals and fires. Um, the hallway is only a lobby. But, he says, if I can get you into the lobby, I will have achieved what I sought, sought to achieve. Um, but he's, he's not trying to erect mere Christianity as its own denomination. Quite the contrary. Um, so it, it amuses me sometimes when I s see people sort of saying of themselves, oh, I'm a mere Christian. Yeah, yeah. Waving the flag. Yeah. Or, you know, though I like it, I, the, the journal Touchstone, its strapline is a journal of mere Christianity. And... Actually, Touchstone is quite a good example of, of a journal which, which has maintained a pretty robust denominational uh, distinctiveness within its contributors without you know, uh, going to a, a lowest common denominator of, of, of mush or, or just camping in the hallway. And I think that's, that's what Lewis himself would, would admire. Um, strong respectful assertion of your ecclesiological convictions um, while acknowledging that there are so many other things in many respects many more important things that different types of Christian have in common. Yeah, do you think that uh, only an Anglican could have written mere Christianity? <laughs> that, that sort of one, one thought that I always have when I read it is, you know, you're not really describing mere Christianity, you're, you're kind of describing Anglicanism yeah. <laughs> on some level. Well, it, it does help to write uh, from the one true denomination. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I said earlier, it's, it's, a, it's a Puritan uh, who, who coins the phrase right. mere Christianity. And if we look at the Second Vatican Council's documents on the church, uh, I, I, think a, I, I think a Roman Catholic... From, from that period on, or, or, or ones even beforehand, could have, could have written that book. Mm. And many have written similar books afterward. The, the documents of the Second Vatican Council themselves use uh, architectural and, and penumbraic yeah. language of the ability of ecclesial communities out, outside of the formal confines of the church. <coughs> Nevertheless, somehow, perhaps mysteriously, existing within the church. So there's this sense of envelopment of, of Christians together. So I think, but yes, I think it helps that, that an Anglican did that as he's trying to maintain the center of what Catholicity is, the, the canon of St. Vincent. Um, another, another thing that comes to mind is that he is perhaps being char characteristically Anglican, but not necessarily in saying that you, you do need to enter one of the rooms and learn from within one of the traditions. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is a, a really perceptive anthropological point, that the way that we all learn is in community. Uh, the I-thou relationship is what opens you up to the rest of the world of knowledge, and that you, you cannot be an individual Without, without a community, there's there's no I without the we. Yeah, and and uh, what you're saying is is about the sort of friendships that take place in the rooms, right? So you you enter the Anglican Church, you have a particular community there that that forms you in the way that only and always friendship does form you. Um, but then you know when I read these letters uh, with with the saint and then other letters that you refer to that with other sort of Roman Catholics. And then, of course, obviously, his friendship with J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, he does seem to be gesturing that friendship is not just the thing that's happening in the room, um, where you sort of grow in your Christian faith in the Anglican room or the Baptist room. Um, it's also somehow um, the way in which, uh, if unification ever were to come to the sort of Western branch of Christianity, uh, friendship is going to be sort of a part of it from his perspective. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, does that, does that sound like a... Am I, am I summarizing Lewis appropriately there, or, or am I sort of projecting? Well, charity in all things, yeah. So friendship is, is crucial, and mutual respect, 
etc. But um, it's interesting that I think Lewis <laughs> doesn't actually have very great respect for what, what he would regard as, as the liberalizing members of any denomination. Um, those who are constantly trying to water down the faith in whichever tradition it is in a secularizing direction, I think don't, don't attract much fr from Lewis in the way of, of respect or, or you might even say charity. Because, um, I mean, it, it's, his, it's his view that, um, you know, the more wholeheartedly you uh, participate in your tradition, w whatever it is, mm -hmm. the better. Uh, and he will say that even of non-Christian religions. Uh, so those who are, you know, very devoutly uh, Jewish or Muslim or whatever it is are probably going to find themselves closer to devout Christians than to liberal members of their own creed, he says. Because I think he, he sees the, the spectrum from... It, well, he, he, use, he uses the image, doesn't he, sometimes of... Um, I think this is Lewis, of... Um, you know, spokes on a bicycle wheel. And, the, you know, your spoke over here might be Islamic and my spoke over here might be Christian. But the closer, you know, the, the closer we get to God, the closer we get to each other. Now, of course, Lewis will want to insist that the God we reach will turn out to be the Christian God and that Muslims will be in for a pleasant surprise. Um, uh, but nonetheless, a very devout member of any creed is going to be close to, to a very devout member of another. Um, and, the, and the demonic thing, the thing Screwtape wants is to, is to weaken the commitments. And yet, at the same time, you're, you're not um, in your particular creed thinking about your creed as a creed. Rather, your creed is, creed is a way of sort of thinking about God. Yeah, oh yeah. And that's, yeah. The, that's the thing that draws all the, all the spokes together. Yeah. Yeah. That's really important that Christ is this centripetal force. You're not going through. Just as when you're, uh, I think... It, in uh, his essay on vulgarism, Lewis says that it's, a, it's an overwhelming burden when one is meditating on a rose to suddenly be aware of one's own existence. It would, it would be nice if we could just go on meditating on the rose instead of then having to be aware that here we are meditating on the rose. I think denominationally he would want to say the same thing. Best to keep the focus on Christ. Don't, don't pause and back up and and pay attention to the own distinctives uh, of your, of your, the, to, to the distinctives of your own denomination. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and every denomination would have their own way of sort of getting obsessed with either their you know, vestments or their fog machines or whatever it is that they're using uh, in a worship service. Um, but, but Christ is right there at the center of it. And as much as he is, you're really doing the, the work that you're supposed to make sure. Yeah. Uh, and Christ is doing through you the work that he wants to do in, in, in drawing his, his followers together and in you know, achieving the, the answer to the high priestly prayer in John 17, that they may be one even as we are one. You know, that's the whole basis, isn't it, for ecumenism uh, scripturally understood. Yeah. Well, with, with only 20 minutes left, uh, if there's any questions uh, either on this topic or, or I think also previously, In terms of uh, uh, liturgical worship, when he visits Greece, he visits at least one, if not more, Greek Orthodox divine services. And he comes back really impressed with what he sees. He says, I, I love the fact that people cross themselves in the service sort of willy-nilly. Whereas in an Anglican church, he says, everyone's sort of on edge, looking around, saying, did everyone cross at the appropriate time, or did they cross? He, he likes 
he likes that. He even says something very strange about a woman crawling around on the floor like a caterpillar, which I, I don't know what that means. But, um, but to your question, he's really happy to be there and, and to be worshiping uh, together. Uh, to my knowledge, I don't, I don't know if he visited, I don't think he was in the habit of visiting other, other churches outside of the Church of England. Not in the habit, no. Uh, there are one or two recorded instances of him going to Mass with, with actually one of the um, one or two of the girls at the kilns, the uh, evacuees at the kilns during the war. Well, some of them were Catholic, and and Lewis got them to go to Anglican service at Holy Trinity, and they said he occasionally came to Mass with us. Uh, but but that's unusual. Um, he he was. I mean, he, <laughs> but it's worth pointing out that he, he didn't much like Anglican worship. <laughs> uh, he wasn't an ecclesial, very, he wasn't very much of an, even an, of an ecclesial Anglican and, and kept his church going to a minimum. You know, he went to the early service at Holy Trinity, uh, which was the shortest service. He arrived last and left first, <laughs> hated hymns, said that he couldn't abide the sound of an organ. Um, <laughs> And he, he says somewhere, doesn't he, that he, thought, he thinks, tends to think of church going as a time-wasting, bothersome, get-together affair full of notices and umbrellas. And, um, and to his mind, real Christianity is, is you know, three or four chaps getting together to, yeah. to think deeply over you know, doctrinal theological matters. But that's, that's Lewis's individualism speaking. And I think he recognized that he was unusually individualistic. And so he imposed upon himself the duty of going both to church and to his college chapel um, because he saw that it was necessary. It, it um, constrained some of his hyper-individualism. But um, yes, the fact that he, he went to this, uh, these occasionally to Greek Orthodox churches and, and said, uh, and the marvelous thing about this woman creeping around on the floor like a caterpillar was that nobody took the blind bit of notice. And, and he says, that's a good attitude for us all. Because who are we to judge another's servant? It's, apart from anything else, it's just good manners, he says. That's a great point you make about the chapel. Because, of course, he did regularly go to Maudlin College Chapel, where he likely would have been praying and worshipping with those who were not in the Church of England. It's from time to time. No one would ask, I suppose. Mm. So this is maybe a bit of a historic question, but um, you generally get the impression that Lewis has had a massive influence on in evangelical Protestants. Um, I assume not as big an influence on within the Catholic Church. What's the particular reason why, if that's true, what is the reason that his, his basic fan base at the moment is mainly mm. evangelical Protestants rather than Roman Catholics? Mm. Well, I, I would actually say that among practicing American Roman Catholics, he's pretty widely read, okay. uh, which, is, which is fascinating. And then before we started, we were talking about how there's also, you know, any number of uh, American scholars who, after becoming Christian and reading those very seriously, I would say partially because they get in touch with the ancient Greek tradition of patristics, um, end up making a conversion to, to Roman Catholicism okay. as well. So. Okay. Yeah, well, it's true that, uh, I mean, both of what you're saying is true. I think that he's, Lewis is popular amongst uh, Catholics, Roman Catholics, um, but he's more popular amongst evangelical Protestants. I think that's a fair yeah. summary. Um, why that should be the case is a big question. I've, I've sometimes thought to myself that he's so very popular amongst particularly American evangelical Protestants because he's, 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 he comes across evidently as a, as a very converted man, the most converted man I ever met, Walter Hooper described him as. Um, he's had a clear adult conversion. Um, he's making every effort to evangelize. Um, he speaks about the life of faith in very personal terms. Personal commitment is important, and the depiction of Aslan in Narnia is, you know, extremely winning. So all of those things, I think, speak straight to the heart of an evangelical. And yet, he doesn't hammer the Bible, and he does talk about the tradition, and doctrine and philosophy and natural theology and um, 
And he'll even talk about dangerous topics like purgatory and the blessed sacrament and confession if you go far enough into him. I mean, you have to get a good way beyond Narnia and mere Christianity and Screwtape to get to those bits, but sooner or later you get to them. And, and by then, the, the evangelicals are so much on his side that they make allowances for all those, yeah. those odd papistical tendencies of his. Um, and that's why I think yeah. you know, quite a few people who have started out evangelical reading Lewis do end up becoming actually Romanists, uh, Romans as he would put it. Um, it's not just me and Walter Hooper, but there are dozens. If you, if you read uh, Joseph Pierce's book, C.S. Lewis and the Catholic Church, he's got a whole appendix in which he lists 30, 50 fairly well-known people who have, who have trod the, the path to Rome having thought they were only treading it to Canterbury. Yeah, I mean, Ross Douthat, the, um, the journalist, he says, uh, you start out reading Lewis, then you're reading G.K. Chesterton, then you're a Catholic. <laughs> You've got to be careful. Well, I, I, I perhaps came across as saying that Lewis's position was that we ought to read what we like, not what we ought to like. But I think that's putting it a bit more bluntly than, than he would really have acknowledged, um, more bluntly than I would want to acknowledge too. Um, just in the context of liberal education, um, the important thing is to be free and, and therefore not, not to be uh, you know, che checking off your, your reading list, you know, the great works of literature, just so you can say you read them. It'd be better to read you know, Ryder Haggard and King Solomon's Minds enthusiastically and attentively than to read the Divine Comedy you know, under a heavy duty. That's, I think, the basic point. It's not a question of either or. It's a question of, of relative enthusiasm and, and um, you know, disposition. Because, uh, of course, he he thinks that, to a certain extent, there, there is, there is um, a legitimate hierarchy of taste and literary critical acumen, that, that some people are better at judging literary works than others. Um, so we ought to be guided towards the good, the beautiful, and the true by those who are wiser and more learned than we. Um, and yeah, if, if we're humble and sensible, we will listen to our elders and betters, and where appropriate, be, allow ourselves to be guided in, in directions which we wouldn't automatically feel immediately congenial to our own personal taste. That being said, you know, it's, a, it's a balance. You know, a little bit of what you like, a little bit of what you ought. <laughs> and hopefully, eventually, you know, the, the two will converge more and more. And you'll find that what you like turns out also to be the the positive best. That's right. Well, that's precisely what Mark Stoddick does, doesn't he? After he escapes from the nice, he, he goes to a pub and finds on the shelf there, I think, a George MacDonald book. Yeah, the pretty books. I think, did he read Sherlock Holmes? Because he had read Holmes when he was younger, he liked it. Yeah. But we're told that Mark Stoddick had, had given up this book halfway through because his tenth birthday had intervened, and he thought it was beneath him to, be, to go on reading George MacDonald when he was 11. Or, um, but now, he said, he opened it and voraciously pursued it. And it was, one, it was a simple pleasure. It was an unaffected enjoyment of a good thing. Uh, it wasn't particularly adult, but who cares? It was a simple pleasure. 
like, you know, and, we, and it gives all these images, doesn't it, of soap and sunlight and bread and water, the, these good natural things that we shouldn't disdain just because we happened to enjoy them when we were children. Um, so that, that comes back to the, the question about you know, following our taste and not following what we are m meant uh, to, to, uh, to find appetizing at any given stage of our life. You mentioned Lewis as the most converted convert and also as an individualist. It seems to me in part his appeal within the US in evangelical circles depends in part upon the fact that within evangelicalism everyone has to choose, every believer has to choose their faith for themselves. Mm. Every believer is characteristically a convert. Is there, how would you see Lewis's relationship to the givenness of a tradition that you're born into? Mm. That's a good question. Do you want to take that, that for a minute? <laughs> On the one hand, we could perhaps inter interpret Lewis's decision to be an Anglican as simply living in the tradition in which he was born into, came from a long line of Anglicans and had Anglican ministers on, the mother, on his mother's side of the family. At, on the other hand, when he comes to the definitive belief in Jesus Christ, he, he spends a lot of time delving into the English reformers, particularly Hooker, to make up his mind. So there is some decision-making that's going on there. We have to contextualize that, being li living in Oxford in the 1930s, it was easy to be, uh, you know, in the University of Oxford, it was easy to be a member of the Church of England. But I don't think he would go so far as someone like Thomas Kempis in pretty much insisting that you bloom where you're planted. Thomas Aquinas would give the advice: Look, even even if it, drawing from kind of the medieval mystical tradition, even if you're in a, a denomination or an abbey or a monastery where things aren't quite right, it's better to stay where you are because the danger to pride in leaving and deciding for something else is too great. I I I wouldn't read Lewis as quite going that far. I think he'd be more open to you being able to make up your minds. Um, as to which place is true, um, as seen in his house analogy in American Christianity. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, yeah, I think it would be a function of his Anglicanism that he wouldn't adopt that line from Thomas Akempis. Um, or, or else he would be undercutting the grounds on which the Church of England was founded. <laughs> um, so he's already sort of implicitly privileging a certain kind of private judgment in being and continuing to be an Anglican. It, he doesn't say much about um, infant baptism, though he himself was baptized as an infant. He, he does say in mere Christianity that there are two main ways in which the spiritual life is communicated to us, and they are baptism and communion. Um, so he evidently did think there was some, something important going on in a baptism even of an infant. It didn't need to be chosen by the adult. But he doesn't explore that in any depth. Uh, because again, that would get into controversial territory with, with his Baptist readers, and he wants to avoid that. But he will go at least as far as to say baptism is important. Um, well, one last point on him being an Anglican. A lot of times today, particularly in the English-speaking world, we equate Anglicanism with latitudinarianism, tolerance, or liberality, wishy-washiness. Uh, I think particularly in the American tradition, Anglicans can be guilty of being cafeteria Christians and grabbing a bit of this and a bit of that. Whereas the kind of Anglican that Lewis was would have really emphasized the givenness. We, we keep coming back to the canon of St. Vincent of Lorenz. The givenness of a body of Christian tradition that one probably shouldn't challenge or spend too much time really challenging, that, that there actually is this great deposit of Christian teaching from the scriptures as interpreted with the early church fathers that is a given, that you can, you can just imbibe it, live out of it, and I think he would want Christians in the various rooms and the various denominations to, to be rooted in that central givenness. As we were saying, the Christ is at the center. 
so less about the denomination, but more emphasizing the givenness um, of the bulk of the Christian tradition. Right. Um, there's a, a scene in the last battle, um, Seventh Book of Narnia, where in the new Narnia that Aslan has created, um, there is um, one of the, the enemies of Narnia who is nonetheless pious, and Aslan accepted um, that man's piousness as service unto him. Um, for which I believe some accuse Lewis of being universalist. My question is, um, what are Lewis's views on the, um, the eternal state of the noble monarchy, the noble pagan, let's say? Uh, yes, he, he is sometimes accused of being a, a universalist on that score, but that's just that's a careless reading of the last battle. Um, because you know there are, there are plenty of other characters in the last battle who who go into Aslan's dark shadow and are never seen of again. Um, I don't know what happened to them. The narrator said they were never seen again. Um, so I mean that's the depiction of hell, of evidently in in Narnian eschatological terms. The uh, the righteous Calomine Emeth, uh, which is a Hebrew word meaning truth or fidelity or permanence. Um, so a carefully chosen name uh, is not an example of Lewis's universalism but an example of his inclusivism that Lewis thought that people could be included by God in the, in the resurrected life even though they may not have explicitly known that they were worshipping him in this life um, so it is by God it is by Aslan that that uh, Kalormin is saved um, not by his own efforts uh, and not because Tash is in any way a reflection of the true God um, so, so it, to that extent I, I myself don't have any particular problems with that depiction um, it seems to me to be a, a kind of uh, imaginative rendering of um, uh, you know Jesus' words to the the centurion about like faith like this I have not found even in the house of Israel um, or it's a flip side of the uh, of the saying of Jesus not, not all those who say Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven so there are some people in this life who think they're Christians but aren't and there may be some people who don't say Lord Lord who actually will enter the kingdom of heaven and there will be surprises Lewis says um, uh, so you may remember that e even one of the dwarfs who shoots the horses, who slaughters the horses in the last battle, even one of those dwarfs is, is found miraculously in, in the heavenly Narnia. And um, that's also a, you know, a quite, quite a shocking... I remember as a boy reading that, being quite shocked. What do you mean, Neil? Because <laughs> the slaughtering of the horses is so absolutely uh, tragic and awful that you think nobody could possibly be forgiven for slaughtering horses. Um, but one of the dwarfs is, which, which you know, reminds me of that, that, that old poem, how does it go, you know, between the stirrup and the ground, mercy I sought, mercy I found. You know, in, in a twinkling of an eye, at the, at the last breath of your life, you may submit and surrender and, and welcome grace into your life. And, and none of us can know what is going on in another person's heart. In, in that scene, We've already heard the ape and the Kalormin say that Tash and Aslan are one, so there's Tashlan. And when Aslan says this to, to the faithful Kalormin Emeth, Emeth then poses the question, ah, so is it the case then, Lord, that you are Tashlan? And Aslan's response is to roar and shake the grounds. There's no, there's no verbal response. It, it's kind of like God saying, I am that I am in the burning bush. It's, it is a, a statement of his being the ground of all being, that this cannot be true. It, it's the extremity of evil and goods that makes Emmeth's good works necessarily be unto Aslan and not unto Tash. And as well as being Christological, I think Lewis is being Pauline here, because in Romans 2, Paul says, yeah, after explaining uh, the natural law in Romans 1 and talking about uh, the condition of the heart, those who listen to the law of the heart, those who reject it, he says in Romans 2 that there are those who will inherit eternal life by pursuing 
honor, truth, and something else. The American way. The American way. <laughs> and to those who pursue uh, selfishness and unrighteousness, they will inherit destruction. So he's, Paul is saying there, there's, there's people who have a, a, a disposition of the heart to pursue truth and goodness and beauty and those who don't. And destruction awaits for the one and then eternal life to the other. Well, join me in thanking uh, both Paul and uh, once again, Dr. So, so that's it for today. Uh, the, um, some folks will be joining us tonight at the kilns. Uh, we have hors d'oeuvres and, and wine and cheese and such. Uh, the interesting areas will be at the kilns uh, in a couple of days, so you guys will see us see it shortly. Um, Film is quite a ways away though, so um, we're going to sort of uh, dismiss you now to, to make your way there as, as we see fit. And can I also make one announcement, and that is yeah. uh, the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society meets on Tuesday evenings during term time. And if you still find yourself in Oxford this coming Tuesday, uh, do come along to Pusey House on St. Giles near the Eagle and Child Pub uh, at 8 for 8.15 uh, for what will, I'm sure, be an excellent talk by. Malcolm Geit, who is a poet, literary critic, theologian, and brilliant speaker, and he'll be talking about C.S. Lewis and George Herbert. It should not be missed. Come along, if you can, on Tuesday night. And join me in thanking once again the folks at the Hall and all the
right. and so having this daily practice of challenges would encourage people just to get into So giving some interesting details and some rapid trails to pull them. So when we lose, we need to keep moving for three years. Yes, because I think in two years, we've covered every time. But then in third year, Can I ask you one question? Because it might, it might actually relieve you right now. Are you? Do you have a regular Wednesday evening commitment when you're in Stoke on Trent? No. In that case, at the moment and until June, lots of Wednesdays and Thursdays, I'm doing my MSc counselling at Keel. So I come up on a Wednesday morning. I sleep overnight on the Wednesday and then go home on a Thursday evening. Which means that if I even have something to say, I sleep in my car. Well, you're welcome to stay in my house. No, I tell you, I love sleeping in my car. It gives well, you're welcome to use my house to have a spare room. And my parents have a spare room. Right. Um, so I'll drop you an email about one or two Wednesdays, because then if we can have supper together, that would be I'll be home. Oh, lovely. You, you have my email. I do. Yeah, I'll be yeah. yeah. And I'll hopefully see you before then. If I don't, I hope that uh, the arguments are intensive. That's really well. Yes. I, I just wish yeah, I could be there. I would think that as well, because um, there's, a, there's, a certain, um, there's a spirit and there's a quality of interaction that frankly will make or break the week. My, yep. my monologue is not going to make or break the week. I found my intensive, the best parts of the week were the seminar sessions right. and the conversations. Yes. Yes. I just find that frames the actual teaching sessions. Well, I'm even intending the teaching sessions to be very heavily interactive. Esther Meads calls us Right. So right. I think the dynamic she had with students, yeah. students found that quite, quite transformative. So I think that's sort of the interaction. So I'll be praying for you. Well, I think you can make a Wednesday evening before Fantastic. That. It should be a Wednesday evening before that. Lovely. Good. So are you going to kill the Right, and I'll leave you to that discussion. Uh, but just one thing, how is, I never know whether it's Siobhan or Sean or Vaughan. So you're going to be Yes, it's going to be Excellent. At the moment, they're going to be transplanted as the Abbey. 